a.m. in Sydney, 10 a.m. in San Francisco, wishing you a great day on the West Coast, and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are in the world. My name is Patrick L. Young. The IPO video live stream, episode nine, starts here. The Nobel Prize for Economics has come the closest to the parish of exchanges since, I believe, the memorable win by Merton and Scholes in 1997. Congratulations to Paul Milgram and Robert Wilson on their work pertaining to auction theory. Meanwhile, across the big world spectrum, perhaps the biggest idiocy of the NGO cum government blob itself, the Stockholm Syndrome, result of conquest's law of politics, is the ongoing belief that the nation state can trap taxpayers and keep them hostage. Ironically, it does affect the bourgeoisie locked into the professions, but for everyone else, an element of the free agent pertains. For decades, I've been noting that this trend would become a major issue. Perhaps I'm touching, well, close to the phenomenon of socionomics, but let's get back to that later in the discussion today, as our expert guest is an acknowledged forerunner and thought leader in that field, Murray Gunn, to whom we'll be speaking in just a moment. However, meanwhile, that whole COVID time press for taxation has ended up with, interestingly enough, becoming a huge counterpoint in none other than the exchange world. But at the same time, of course, governments are holding us hostage. I suppose the one area where declining Europe is evidenced by the EU might be able to claim leadership is by being an early mover in the explosion of this debt crisis. John Holzman in City AM this week notes how the Eurozone inflation rate was negative 0.3% in September. That's after a negative 0.2% rate in August. In Southern Europe, the September deflation rates we're now at was negative 2.3% in Greece, negative 0.9% in Italy, and negative 0.6% in Spain. The net result, Holzman notes, is that and I quote, soon Italy and Spain will be little more than ECB economic colonies, as the bank has already bought a gargantuan 25% of Italian debt, with that number expected to skyrocket to 50% by next year. I suppose my concern is that even with the ECB owning 50% of Italian debt, with what must surely be the most elastic balance sheet of all time, that would leave almost still 100% of Italian GDP in debt terms to be funded by actual bond buyers, investors, if you like. As Italian GDP, even on the perma-optimistic numbers of the OECD, will leave Rome the capital of 192% debt to GDP by the end of next year. Of course, Greece at 229% is expected to be, well, a great deal worse indeed, but at least that's not so economically systemic to the Eurozone's survival. However, with France and Spain expected to have debt to GDP of 152% and 150% respectively, well, at this stage, I suppose, our governments start to look like a man in quicksand. And as that old cartoon of two explorers up to their necks in the thing go, do you know, I'm supposed to stop moving, sir, but I'm inclined to wiggle. And how might that wiggle go? Well, clearly, there is a finite amount of debt investors can buy. Arguably, even fiscal gravity will eventually come to haunt the central banks like the ECB. 
Thus, in the short term, of course, the first desperate act of any addict is to seek funding for another hit through an easy money grab, aka higher taxes. The UK's brief outbreak of government during 2019, roughly speaking, it was called last December, has given way to another limp farrago of apathetic posturing on the fiscal front run by another toothless posh-sounding bloke. The US overspends everywhere on the cusp of choosing mad or bad as president, and the federal government is, if anything, a slouch compared to many states and municipalities. Europe, it goes without saying further, the capital of the Federation of Kekkanistan is, as I mentioned earlier, more bankrupt still. The above, incidentally, is not meant to be a political diatribe. It simply amounts to economic gravity. Politicians do what they can get away with. I'm just an investor who seeks to make a return without being destroyed by the machinations of the spendthrift or indeed the manipulations of central bankers. A first sign of pushback has emerged from none other, as I mentioned earlier, the Parish of Exchanges, where, as you may know, I published the unique daily business newsletter and analysis, Exchange Invest, read daily by all the most influential in the business of bourses. More information on that, of course, at exchangeinvest.com. Amongst the parish, NASDAQ have been mentioned to be looking for a more sustainable base for trading than the anyway reaching capacity of power supply, at least New Jersey data centers, which some smart aleck in the political firmament thought could easily be taxed because they're fixed properties. Of course, you can't roll up a data center and take it away. And here the political classes have shown us how analog they are. The difficulty is you can move the data. You can move the data very quickly. And even if you want to build more data centers, well, it's really more a play on planning permission than the great scheme of things, rather than actually a huge effort in industrial economics, as I know from sitting on the board of a data center some years ago. Now, even allowing for the fact that NASDAQ is taking, by the looks of it, that long and sustainable route while seeking a whole new mega infrastructure to use for the next trading generation, which may well end up being situated in, in and around Dallas, Fort Worth and Texas. Yeehaw! NASDAQ underlines the common analog assumption of government in a digital age, and it undermines it. A static tax base, there is not in the digital age in any way, shape or form. That underpinning isn't remotely as big as blobsters think it is. And when they threaten it with taxation or excessive regulation, ultimately, whatever bonds may remain within domicile region can be broken through the incentive of better living standards elsewhere that the likes of New York City and London, to name but two cities, are declining into hotspots of crime akin to the 1970s, only accelerate the taxation concern issues. That leaves a major concern, as currently no Western government is even the remotest scintilla of understanding that their spendthrift ways are hugely endangered. If confidence in funny money takes even a remote hit, civilization might turn out to be the hundreds of miles away from the white picket fence you were used to calling home. Certainly, the servers where the business is done will be. That arc of the macro economy from taxation to investment brings me neatly to today's guest. Murray Gunn is a doyen of the technical analysis world. We first met, as Murray was reminding me just yesterday, in 1998 in Rome, the capital of Italy, and of course the usual place where folks who were born in Edinburgh and Belfast or want to be introduced at a conference of the International Federation of Technical Analysts. Murray has been a professional technical analyst and fund manager for, gosh, getting on for 30 years now. I know, ladies, he does not look remotely that old, with significant experience at Standard Health Investments and the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority before becoming head of technical analysis at HSBC Bank. 
Murray is the author of the book, Trading Regime Analysis, The Probability of Volatility, published by Wiley. And he served on the board of the Society of Technical Analysts, the foremost body in the United Kingdom for those who like following charts, such as indeed myself. Moreover, as I mentioned earlier, in the terms of the frame of socioeconomics, Murray is a founding member of the Socioeconomics Foundation, believing that social mood is the driver of economic activity in the cycles of inflation and deflation. He sees broad similarities between the Austrian School of Economics, the likes of the good folks such as von Mies, and of course, the great Mr. Hayek, and the cyclical views expressed by the likes of Charles Dow, Ralph Nelson Elliott, and Hamilton Bolton. Murray, good evening. Welcome. You are live on IPO Video. Where in the world are you today? Good evening, Patrick. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me. Great to see you again after uh, all these years. And um, I am in the great county of uh, Essex, just outside London, just to the east of London. And um, it's uh, it been a, a very rainy day, but that hasn't uh, put me off uh, with my enthusiasm for the markets as, as normal. But um, yes, I've been in Essex for uh, around 10 years now. And uh, as you were uh, alluding to um, with my uh, Scottish roots, uh, I think there's a lot of similarities between people from Essex and people from Scotland. We, we both have a, a similar sense of humour and uh, a similar sort of um, anti-establishment rebellious streak as well. So um, I think I fit in here quite well. <laughs> so with that rebellious streak in mind, I mean, tell us a little bit about your career because you studied... I do believe the dark art and science of economics and then very quickly became a technical analyst. Yes, well, like uh, most technical analysts, I started on the fundamental side. It's funny, all, pretty much all technical analysts started as fundamental analysts or economists, um, and yet um, most economists and fundamental analysts never really study technical analysis at all. So there's, there's a real... A dichotomy there and it gives us an advantage because it, it means that we know uh, both sides of the fence if you if you like and um yes so i, I came into the markets uh, back in uh, 1991 um after graduating um in economics and uh, believe the markets would uh, would act the way that the economic textbooks told us they would and of course realized within about a week that they didn't and um uh, you know, that, that sent me on a course of uh, thinking and scratching my head and thinking, well, if all, you know, looking at, say, corporate stocks, if all the news was, was good, the balance sheet was good, the profit and loss was, was really good and the results were good, why did the share price go down? And um, I thought, well, something else must be at play here. And uh, that's what got me thinking about the more uh, what's driving the stock market, what's driving markets, financial markets in general. And that's what led me down to technical analysis, the more behavioral uh, aspects of things. And um, pretty quickly into the Elliott Wave principle, most people go through a journey when they get into technical analysis. They, they look at all, all sorts of um, uh, aspects of technical analysis, um, Dow theory, Elliott Wave principle, uh, indicators, uh, the, whole, the whole gamut. And um, yeah, people kind of, come on to uh, their own way of looking at things eventually. And, and certainly for me, uh, after my years of experience, I, I, I've 
certainly realise that the Elliott Wave principle is is the aspect of technical analysis which which underpins everything else. Fabulous. So so let's take that back a second. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, Mary's going to be talking about the theory of Elliott Wave for a few minutes. And then we're going to go run through some charts about markets and so on. If you've got any questions, then do please send them to us in the chat. Murray will be delighted to talk his way through various things about markets at the moment. Ralph Nelson Elliott, give us a little bit of a background on this fascinating man, Murray. Well, you're right. He, he was a, a fascinating man. He... Um, for most of his career, uh, he was uh, a top accountant. Uh, a lot of the time with the with the U.S. government, and spent a lot of time in Central America, um, specifically in the railroad uh, industry. Um, and so he had an accountant's brain. Uh, then back in the nineteen twenties, was back in back in the U.S. and he became um, an advisor to tea rooms. Um, he became a, a kind of a tea room uh, entrepreneur. And uh, if you think that um, you know, tea rooms back then were the equivalent to Starbucks and uh, Costa Coffee and everything is now, then it, it was it was big stuff. Uh, so he was he was very interested in uh, in business. Um, then after the uh, the Wall Street crash in 1929, he he was really uh, scratching his head. He he, he uh, was suffering from a, a bit of an illness that he had uh, picked up on his travels throughout his career, and so what he did, he he set upon uh, a study, an empirical study of uh, stock market data, using his using his accountant's uh, you know forensic skills, got all the data and and uh, just studied what the market was telling or how how did the market actually act. Um, how did it? Uh, how did it behave? And uh, it didn't come in with any, uh, you know, uh, pre uh, thoughts about you know pre pre biases uh, about what should what how the market should uh, act. And what he discovered uh, was was quite incredible, really, um, and well well before its time. He discovered that the, the market swings between uh, periods of pessimism and optimism, um, and these movements in the market, he called them waves, they uh, repeat at every time scale. So what he discovered was really that the market is a, is a fractal. There's a basic, he discovered that there was a basic set of patterns um, and there's a basic structure to the market. Let me just put on a chart here and I'll, and I'll show the viewers. Um, Look at it. If I can. Hopefully you can see that. Yes, we certainly can. The Elliott Wave principle. Yeah, so uh, here's Mr. Elliott up, up here uh, on the left. And uh, so this is the basic design of, of Elliott's discovery. And so what he discovered, the market advances, if we're talking about a bull market in, st in the stock market, the market advances in five waves. So if we can see here, wave one in the circle, wave two in the circle, Wave three in the circle. Hopefully, you can see my cursor moving here. Four and five. So it's yep. a five-wave movement um, higher, and then it corrects in the what what uh, Elliot called the corrective wave in, in uh, a lettered phase A, B, and C. Of course, he came up with the, the nomenclature himself for the for the uh, the Elliot wave principle. But the main discovery really was the fact that wave one itself was split into five waves. 
So wave one in a bracket here, wave two in a bracket. But not only that, wave one in the bracket was split into five waves. Wave two was split into three waves. So you can see that um, the market repeats itself at every time scale. The, the market is a, is a fractal. So you have this um, ongoing progression of the market, which means that, which does allude to the, to the, the dividend theory of growth uh, in, in the stock market. The stock market will always um, you know, move higher over time, but there can be what Elliot's discovery really meant was the fact that there can be extended periods of time when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that speaks to the what we call the higher degree fractals. So if the market made five moves up in terms of these numbers here, then the market would have a, a corresponding um, bigger setback than than uh, than in previous previous waves. But the, the basic design is also really interesting. Uh, his discovery was because, because the fact that, as you can see, these numbers here, these are the uh, uh, these allude to the number of waves in the cycle, and mm -hmm. all of these waves, all of these all of these numbers are um, Fibonacci numbers, and of mm -hmm. course that's related to the golden ratio, which goes back to uh, uh, Euclidean uh, geometry. And it's the uh, it's the ratio that underpins the natural world of growth, and it's all around in nature, um, you know, from from sunflowers and, and nautilus to to galaxies, um, and it's amazing how uh, what what Elliot discovered was the fact that the the market can be uh, led um, naturally by these 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 this this ratio, and so. A lot of the time, uh, waves will retrace to a certain level uh, related to the golden ratio and then reverse. A lot of the time, the market will extend to uh, a price target, uh, which is related to the golden ratio, and then reverse. It, it, it doesn't happen all the time, but what Elliot discovered was the, it, the fact that it happens uh, a lot of the time. Now, one of the things, if we could just move on to this slide, um, which is uh, which validates the Elliott wave principle is the fact that Elliott's uh, original uh, drawings are shown here in uh, his uh, one of his uh, essays from uh, 1940 to 1942, and you can see the the, the basic design that Elliott had here. You have a five um, higher degree waves up. Wave one here split into five waves and wave uh, one here on the left-hand side is split into five waves, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see how the, the, the market progresses. Now, um, so this was Elliot's drawing in 1940. In 1999, uh, Benoit Mandelbrot, who is um, or was a, a, a you know, famous mathematician and, and famous person in, in, in the markets and a lot of the uh, quant community, Yep. Uh, certainly liked, uh, you know, Mandelbrot's work. Uh, he wrote uh, an, an essay in the Scientific American uh, called A Multifractal Walk Down Wall Street, um, where he talked about fractals and um, uh, how they how they led the market, how they um, how, how that's that was the market's design. He used uh, charts almost exactly the same as Elliot's here. Um, but it was uh, obviously 1999 rather than 1940. So yeah. um, we, we, we certainly think that Elliot 
uh, discovered that the market is a, is a fractal system and it was proven by Mandelbrot um, you know, 60 years later. 60 years later. Fascinating altogether. So, I mean, looking at that between the work of, of Elliot and then its validation by Mandelbrot many years later, who was who was such a pioneering genius, really, of the whole quantitative financial movement uh, in many ways in the, in the analytical terms. How does that actually practically work in markets? Because, I mean, there's a lot of complexity there. I mean, one of the things you mentioned earlier was, you know, indicators people go to and things like that. Well, of course, indicators are great because they just give you a number or a line. So they're more or less, you know, they're the, the, the Bugs Bunny cartoon of, of technical analysis. I mean, they essentially hit you in the head with something. So therefore, it's pretty obvious what they're doing. Whereas Anywave looks to me as if it could potentially be rather subjective. Yes, the, 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 this is the, the major, um, shall we call it a criticism? Um, I think we can, we can call it a criticism. It's the, it's the major criticism of, of the Elliott Wave principle is the fact that uh, it appears to be quite subjective. You, we, we, we'll show some charts later on where we, we, we put labels on the charts um, and that decides the, 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 the outlook for, for, for the next uh, period of time. Now, we don't just randomly label these, these labels. Uh, the Elliott Wave Principle, Elliott had certain rules of wave formation. And so um, these rules can't be broken. So when, when a, an Elliott Wave analyst is, is looking at a potential wave count, as we call it, um, they have to ad adhere to the rules of mm -hmm. uh, wave formation and guidelines. So uh, the, under the understanding, uh, it's very understandable that people get frustrated when they see a, a, a wave or a market labeled with a certain wave count and then the price changes and then the the, the labeling changes right now um at any point in time there will be uh, two or three or even more potentially valid wave counts that the job of the analyst is to um to work out uh based on uh, not just the price action but looking at say things like sentiment uh, as well to have to give clues as to where we are potentially in the wave structure. Now, um, the, the, the way that I uh, like to explain uh, to people who, who find it frustrating is that I myself, uh, um, I mean, I, I like trend following uh, as an investment plan. Um, as a long-term investment plan, trend following is, is a good, uh, it's been proven to be successful. So you know, let's take the basic trend following system based on moving average averages, for instance. Now, um, if you if you trade or you you invest based on moving averages, um, nobody has any um, uh, questions as to whether the as to when the moving averages change. So you know, today the moving average could be positive, and you could be long the market. Uh, tomorrow, the moving average could turn negative and you could end up being neutral or short the market. Um, and that's exactly the same as Elliott, the Elliott Wave principle. When the analysis, when the price changes, the analysis has to change right? because, the, because there are rules involved. And so that's where it could be argued as being Keynesian because wasn't it Keynes who said he changed his opinion when the price changed? So um, sorry, that's slightly facetious, but um, but interesting to see that Keynesian was really an Elliott Wave analyst, I suppose, in that sense. Um, it's interesting because, I mean, actually, you know, we already have a question from the audience and they're asking, you know, how did the waves behave during COVID? I mean, was that actually, has, has 
the incredible COVID shakedown still held up your faith in Elliott Wave theory? Very much so, yes, indeed. Um, you know, the uh, we were telling, uh, Elliott Wave International were telling our, our um, subscribers uh, coming, in, coming into the end of last year uh, that a, a top was probable uh, in the in the major markets, um, and, and 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 you know so it turned out we we were from just by looking at the price action we were ready uh, for uh, a turn in the market and of course when the market falls uh, when the market moves quite dramatically it, it's doing so on um, a, a, a huge focus on on, on fear or there's a big there's lots of emotions. In the market, and of course, once you get lots of emotions in the market, that's when it can really um, bring out the, the waveforms uh, themselves, because that's that's what drives markets. It's 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 herd, herding behavior that drives mm -hmm. markets, and uh, yeah. So um, you know, when the market uh, had exhausted itself in March, uh, you know, we were ready for that for that low um, as well. So yes, it's uh, in 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 times of fast moves. The Elliott waves actually can be very, very beneficial. So actually, we've got a, a sort of extension of those questions already roaring in. Thank you very much, Martin Watkins, previous guest on this IPO vid series. Martin, great to hear from you today. You're from somewhere towards the, the western side of London, I do believe, in Buckinghamshire. Um, so effectively, first of all, he's interested in a very historic thing. How did the Elliott Wave perform during the Big Bang period when we had a huge structural reform to UK stocks? And he's also interested in what does things, what, what check effect do you see when you have like contract changes, for example, changes in tick sizes or things like that? And then he's interested in the in the macro. What's been the effect of algorithmic trading? Has that still, despite all of that very, very, very hyper short term noise, still made the the Elliott Wave valid? Very interesting questions. It, yeah, absolutely. I take the last one, the last one first, and um, we get asked this a lot as to whether you know um, computer trading. Uh, Oh, I'm showing my age now. Uh, that, that, as we used to call it, computer <laughs> trading, algo trading. I should say, you know, uh, it, you know, affects how uh, things happen. Now, I can only go from my my own experience back in when I was working with the uh, um, Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Uh, we were one of our jobs was to run uh, models uh, uh, of investing and trading, and um, so we would we would run the models and. Um, the thing is that uh, you run the model, you, you create the model, you create the algo, if you like. Uh, a human being creates that algo mm -hmm. and lets it run. But when things start to go wrong, or even if things start to go good, that's when human emotions start to come into it. And uh, you know, we had one particular uh, you know model back then, which involved with selling volatility, and. Um, Obviously, you know, at that time, back in the financial crisis, it started to to underperform, and 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 we we, we turned it off. So, um, or we we scaled it back a little bit. So, you know, human. Be the, the bottom line is that human beings are responsible for what goes into a computer model, what goes into an algorithmic uh, trading uh, methodology. So, uh, ultimately, human beings are still driving the market. So, 
in terms of how, how Elliott Wave performed during the Big Bang period, very well. Um, I'll just cite, you know, Robert Robert Prechter, um, the, the dean of the Elliott Wave School for many decades and the president of uh, Elliott Wave International. Um, he was one of the only people that was uh, bullish back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, as the as the market was 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 coming out of its you know long term uh, sideways uh, bear market, and uh, called for the a bull market of uh, epic proportions during the 1980s. Um, so the Elliott Wave uh, structure anticipated that bull market of the 1980s. Uh, and of and of course, you know, you can see this all on the internet. But Robert obviously uh, uh, called the, the the 1987 crash uh, as well. So you know, the Elliott waves can uh, at that period um, showed that they can um, not only call the bull market, but also call when there's going to be um, uh, a bit of a uh, sudden correction as well. In terms of how does a, a change in the tick size affect things? I I don't think it um, it really affects uh, it, it, anything that much. It, perhaps maybe that's alluding to um, more people, more retail investors coming into the market. If if the if the tick size is uh, reduced and it makes it more accessible uh, for for retail investors to to be in the market, that can have an effect very much as we're seeing at the moment. Um, you know, you look at all these uh, minis and mini minis or super minis or whatever are coming into the market now. That's a sign of euphoria, and that's a sign of excessive, uh, you know, optimism at the moment. And so, one reason why we think the markets are are set for a fall. So, market set for a fall. Shall we get to it? Shall we go <coughs> Wicker's Wicker's world of technical analysis? A quick review of the markets. Okay, well, let me just go through um, a few charts here and, and, and stop me if I'm going too slowly or quickly. Now, uh, you and I will remember this from the, the 70s, the reruns of this from the 70s, uh, Patrick, but the, yep. the, the the original blob, I think they've made a remake of the blob. Uh, I have not, I've not watched it. I just remember the one with Steve McQueen in it. But it, it, it struck me that, that what's been happening over the last few decades really has has been analogous to to this movie um the blob um it's indescribable it's indestructible and really nothing can stop it so the thesis that we're working from is at the moment what's happening is that is there a super cycle top going on uh in the markets and it's the the blob of deflation now many people most people think of deflation as um as you alluded to in your intro as well um, as declining prices, like consumer prices or producer prices, and and, and that, that that that's fair. I mean that we would call that price deflation. Um, in our view, the the real measure of uh, inflation and deflation is to do with the monetary side. So uh, uh, deflation would be a contraction in the amount of money and credit uh, in an economy. Now. Uh, that is really with that gets down to the the, the age-old quantity theory of money. A lot of people are saying at the moment. Obviously, we've had this huge increase in the money supply, then to money stock in the U.S. Therefore, we're going to get a lot of uh, price inflation. 
Well, just look at this chart and we can see that actually, you know, even though the uh, money supply has been um, well above uh, the change in, in the CPI, CPI has really been subdued, certainly since QE uh, started as well. Um, and in actual fact, if you look at what's happening, if the Fed looked at this chart, they would stop printing money. Okay, because this shows the chart of um, uh, the US core CPI, which is the uh, the blue line here, and uh, M2 velocity, uh, which is leading the CPI by seven quarters. This is over the last 20 years. So the velocity can be thought of as the amount of times a dollar is changing uh, hands in the economy, but it's basically the ratio of GDP divided by the money stock. So as the Fed prints more money, velocity goes down. So if the Fed looked at this chart, they would say, they would think, well, actually, you know, what we're doing is self-defeating <laughs> because um, it, judging by this chart, if the relationship still holds, then the CPI, the, the, the rate of change in CPI is set to fall quite dramatically uh, over the next few months. So that's the, that's the, the monetary, uh, the, 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 um, the price side, if you like, of, of inflation. Yeah. What what we're thinking about is more on the uh, the debt deflation side of things, which brings us to, to socioeconomics, as you uh, alluded to. Now, uh, this is Robert Prechter's uh, um, theory that, that so it's social mood that determines social actions. Most people think that social actions determine social mood. And uh, in actual fact, it's the it's the other way around. And the way to, one of the ways to think about it is to think about, um, uh, say, war. People would say, well, uh, you know, war makes people angry. A that would be the standard way of thinking about things. A, a socioeconomic way of thinking about it would be that angry people make war. Another way to think about it is that um, recessions make business people cautious. The socioeconomic way of thinking about it would be that cautious business people cause recessions. So it's really turning the causality, you know, on its head. So it's social mood, which is which is unconsciously driven through the herding behavior of society. And when we have a positive mood trend, people feel contented, optimistic. So society really reflects that mood. It's it's reflected in politics and people feel lighter and happier. So therefore, popular culture um, reflects that. And also people buy stocks and take on debt. And this is why the, the stock market is our what we call our socioeconometer, socioeconometer, which is the measure of the social mood. And um, if we're in a positive social mood environment, the stock market will be going up. If, the, if we're in a negative social mood environment, the stock market will be going down. Um, here we are here with the slide just showing the, 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 the other aspects to it. Now, one aspect I'll just touch on briefly and I don't have the chart here, but I will really encourage viewers to, to look up socioeconomics.net is that we have a, a study out at the moment, which is one of the most downloaded studies on the web uh, right at the moment, showing the relationship between um, presidential elections and the stock market. And um, what it's actually saying at the moment is that it looks at the, the previous three years of performance of the US stock market and how that over the last 200 years has been related to um, whether the incumbent is re-elected or whether the challenger 
uh, actually gets in. And uh, what it's saying okay. at the moment and is... And what what's the result? Go on, give us a clue. What, what does that tell us? Well, at, at the moment, um, contrary to the to what all the polls are saying, at the moment, it, it it's basically saying if the stock market stays around these current levels, then Trump is actually um, a favourite to to be re-elected. Um, it's it's uh, moving between uh, strong favourite and um, and mild favourite at the moment, um, but that is what the socioeconomics uh, is saying. That's what the history of the stock market and socioeconomics has told us. Um, so that's going to be quite fascinating to see what happens. If the stock market has a if social mood drops off in the next three weeks, then Trump becomes uh, the, the, less probable to uh, be re-elected and Biden becomes uh, more probable to be to be elected. So uh, I would encourage viewers to look at socioeconomics.net uh, mm -hmm. on that one. But essentially, you know, what we're saying really is that Debt deflation is what we're concerned with. And it happens, I mean, obviously, uh, there has been a huge amount of increase in debt over the last few decades. Everyone knows about that, and we've been talking about it for decades. Um, when does it when does it break? Well, it, it breaks when there's been a buildup of excess credit and social mood starts to turn negatively. So, you know, here's what happened in Japan. Obviously, we had this massive positive social mood in the 1980s. Um, and then a period of negative social mood reflected in the fact that the Nikkei was falling. Um, so it started falling from the 1990. Now, this is what happened to the Japanese private sector debt uh, at that time. So uh, as the uh, economy started to contract in the early 1990s, private sector debt as a percentage of GDP actually went up a little bit, um, as you would expect given the, the mathematics of it. But after that, it really went into a long-term uh, two and a half decades worth of um, deflating. And this is what we think is happening now in, in the US specifically. If we look at US, the US uh, private sector debt as a percent of GDP is, is up at 220%, same rough level where, where it was with uh, Japan. Uh, and so we have the situation where there's excess credit in the private sector. Now, um, you alluded to in your introduction about, about the amount of public sector debt that's coming through, and that's fine. Um, you know, we can talk about modern monetary theory or the magic money tree, uh, as, as I call it, or, or many people do. But um, in Japan, public sector debt ballooned, has ballooned over the last few decades, but private sector debt deflated. So that's why you had this period of uh, uh, deflation in, in, in Japan. So what about um, what's happening just now? So if we look at uh, what's been happening around the world over the last few decades, it's, it really is, it blows your mind, it blows my mind to think that Japan's been in a bear market for um, uh, 30 years. Uh, since the, the very last day of 1989 was its top, and it's obviously nowhere near exceeding that. Uh, the Eurozone, as displayed by the Eurostox index, has been a bear market for 20 years. I remember it being in the markets back in, in, in when the bubble burst in, in uh, the internet bubble burst in 01 and 02, and, and when we had the drop there, and everyone was saying, well, it's fine, 
don't worry about it because you know the, the the central banks will never let us turn into Japan. Well, well, guess what? You know, the euro the or eurozone has turned into Japan for many years already. China topped out in 07. China's been in a 13-year and counting bear market. So this idea that that stock markets can't have a have a long-term bear market is uh, a fallacy. And so we think the US is topping out just now and going to be joining uh, the world in this uh, in this bear market. This is the crux of it. It took me a while to get here, but this is the crux of um, of our thesis. Uh, and this shows the Elliott wave uh, count for the uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average going back to uh, the early 1900s. Um, so 1929 uh, was uh, what we call super cycle wave three, the super cycle wave three top. Um, and 1932 low was the super cycle wave four uh, low. In terms of Elliott wave, um, we can count one, two, three, a sideways movement for four here. And all of this movement since the 1980s has been uh, cycle degree wave five, which itself uh, will complete a super cycle degree uh, wave five as well. So it's an extremely significant top uh, that's happening at the moment. Um, what makes it really interesting, and then this is where, you know, as, as I alluded to, when we're looking at, at potential wave counts, um, we have we, we can look at other information to give us clues. And one clue, one really, really big clue as to why this might be a big top uh, or a super cycle top is that this is the first outside year since 1982. Now, uh, I'm sure your viewers will, will know uh, uh, what an outside bar is, an outside day would be when the, the high and the low of the of the day's action is uh, outside. Uh, so it's higher than the previous day's high and lower than the previous day's low. The high and low were, were outside the previous markings. The fact that this is the first outside year since 1982 when the bull market really started to get underway is significant. But it's the fact that this is also the first, um, uh, it's not only engulfing the high and low this year, not only engulfs last year's high and low, but also the previous two years high and low as well. So this is a major clue that a, a, a peak in sentiment has been uh, reached. Now, talking about sentiment, let's look at the Wilshire 5000 index as a percent of um, US GDP. Um, going back to the 1970s here, this is the, the, the Warren Buffett indicator, a, a measure of valuation of US stocks, if you like. Um, well, I mean, the chart speaks for itself. But also it's interesting we can count a five-wave movement in Elliott terms with, with wave three here subdividing into five waves, which would, we would expect from an Elliott wave perspective. So this movement here tells us that this is actually potentially having a top. Uh, sentiment in terms of NASDAQ volume. I mean, everyone knows how narrow the, the rally has been. We know about the, the call buying. Um, from your world, uh, Patrick, the, the, the IPO uh, craze, would you call yeah. it a craze? You'd call it a boom. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's all uh, analogous to a top. Uh, SPACs have come back, roaring back into the market blind pools as they called them in the late 1920s. But the Nasdaq S&P volume ratio is much higher now than it was back in the peak 
20 years ago. So that in itself is warning uh, of a talk. So just, just to stop there for a second, I mean, you just mentioned blind pools. I mean, do you think that this sort of concept of SPACs and these sorts of things are sort of the blind pools of the, of the 2020s, like they, 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 they were 100 years ago? It's very analogous to it, yes, I, I would say. I mean, um, you know, to have to have blind faith in uh, investors giving their money to um, a pool, a fund, whatever you want to call it, and not knowing what they're going to be investing in, that in itself speaks of massive optimism that, that whatever the fund manager or the pool operator is going to to choose to invest their money with is going to be successful. That's essentially what this boom in SPACs is seeing. And so that's driving, and it's driving us. I'm, I'm quite excited now because we're at this huge super cycle top. So carry on with your with your next chart and keep showing us this amazing dispersion. Well, uh, that's right. Now, another, another clue as to why we think that... Um, the, uh, the US stock market is, is finally topping out is uh, the fact that um, we can look at the, the, the stock market priced in Fed tokens, um, dollars. Uh, these can be printed, as we can see, as we have seen over the last decade, they can be printed as much as they want. So these are Fed tokens. This is the Dow priced in Fed tokens. Um, this is the Dow priced in something that can't be printed. And you might call it honest money. You, you would certainly call it real money. And so this is the Dow priced in gold, which is a currency, a, a form of money. So you can see that the, the Europe topped out you know, 20 years ago. Um, and really, if uh, the Fed hadn't been printing all this money, then perhaps the stock market might not have uh, gone up uh, in, in, in dollar terms, in US dollar terms, as much as it has. Certainly in, in gold terms, it has gone down. So you could say that over the last you know, 20 years, certainly over the last decade, that this has maybe been a bit of an illusion that's been going on in, in uh, the US stock market. Um, now, 20 years ago, or in 2001, 19 years ago, uh, Robert Prechter made a forecast on the Dow Gold ratio uh, when it was up here in 1999, predicting that it would come down uh, in in this movement, what we call a C wave uh, down here. This is what was called, it's called a, an expanded flat correction, uh, not to get too technical in Elliott wave terms. And this is the the, the updated um, you know forecast uh, since then. So we've we've come down uh, here into uh, what was that 2009 and back up uh, in, a, in a corrective advance. And so what the forecast is saying is that the Dow gold ratio or Dow priced in honest money should continue to go lower uh, over the next uh, few years. Now, you could say, well, that's because some people might say that's because gold's going to go you know, to a gazillion or whatever it's going to be uh, that people are talking about. Then um, that could happen. We'll come on to our, our gold forecast in a minute. Um, you know, but really, given our, our Elliott Wave uh, forecast of uh, the US stock market, it, it, it means that we're probably going to be into a much bigger, much deeper decline than, than people actually think in the, in the stock market. So that's the US. Um, 
Moving on, just to, to, to briefly move on to a couple other markets, uh, we've got the DAX here and the FTSE. Uh, what we're thinking about the DAX is that um, the uh, movement down to the low in uh, in 09 was wave B, and what we're uh, of, um, of a cycle degree wave B. So this is what we call primary degree wave A, primary degree wave B, Primary degree wave C, which is the circle, should, should form a five waves. And we have one, two, three, four, and a five. So we think that the DAX has completed uh, a five wave movement higher from 09 to complete primary degree wave C, which is cycle degree wave B. And what that means is, again, what we're talking about is an expanded flat correction. That means that the, the, the DAX should now be set for a fall in wave C, which should take it to... Uh, towards the 09 uh, lows. Now, it looks like the, the, the market has gone a lot higher than, than uh, it, it did uh, the top back here in, in 07. Uh, and that's true. But we have always have to remember that the DAX index is a total return index. If we look to the DAX price index, actually, the market has just made it to, to where it was back in, the, back in that 07 uh, high. The FTSE itself is very similar. You can see how the market's really gone kind of sideways uh, over the last 20 years. We think this is cycle degree wave A, A cycle degree wave B, and the market. The FTSE topped out two years ago. It's been in a bear market for two years, you know, already. People forget about that. Um, but we're 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 subdividing into a, a decline in the market, which could start to accelerate pretty rapidly uh, over the next few weeks. Um, I've just got a couple more charts to show, and then we can maybe you know look at some more questions. But uh, Eurostox itself now, now uh, uh, this is an interesting chart from a socioeconomic point of view. This shows the triangle which is happening in the Eurostox index. So when you see a triangle in um, in a chart, it means it's a continuation pattern, which means that the the the, the market should exit the triangle from the direction it went in. So obviously the market. Uh, had rallied into this wave three, uh, as we're calling it, top in 1999. Um, so eventually the market will, will, will go higher again. But this sideways movement is what we call a triangle, which consists of five waves. Now, this speaks to optimism and pessimism. The euro was launched at the high. As we approached, approached the first low um, back in 2002, uh, 03. We had a lot of no votes on the constitution of the of the of the uh, uh, Europe. At the top of wave B, we had more optimism. We had Bulgaria and Romania being admitted. At the at the low, just just after the low point of wave C, we had the eurozone crisis. Uh, and at the top here um, uh, last year, we had you could call it a lot of eurozone unity uh, amidst the the negotiations over Brexit. So. What we think is happening here in the Eurozone is that we, we have completed the first four waves of a triangle. We're into the final wave. So, so the good news, and there is good news, it's not all doom and gloom, is that we're in, in the, the sort of final wave of uh, 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 a decline in, in the Eurozone. But that, that, that decline could, could still you know, bring the market down at least 50%, 50% from where it is at the moment. So um, once it's over, uh, then the market will be free to, to move again. Now, what's going to be interesting is what it, what kind of sentiment, because this is all going to be driven by a negative social mood, uh, 
because that's what drives market. What what's going to happen around here? Will it be will it be the um, the breakup of the euro or, or or a partial breakup of the euro? It could be. We don't know what the answer is going to be to that. We just know that the the wave E low, if this is correct and there is a triangle going on here, there'll be a, lots of dramatic news going on in the eurozone over the next uh, couple of years. So, I mean, just looking at just looking at that very quickly on the on the whole eurozone thing, what you're saying is that imminently, I mean, in the next few months, there could be some really quite downward moves i mean we're we're on the cusp of a downward move at the moment if not already in it absolutely yes we we, we, we certainly the wave counts um i'd encourage uh viewers to look at uh elliott wave international uh european short-term update looks at it uh three times a week uh and we are um been moving down the sideways to down movement that we've seen since uh june really uh, is is the start of uh, a, a much bigger decline? Uh, we we think there are obviously levels where if that broke on the on the top side, it would invalidate the directly bearish movement. But certainly, as things stand today, uh, on the thirteenth of October, it it would appear that we're on the cusp of a movement down over the next few weeks. Very very interesting altogether. So so let's have a quick pop over to China then. I think you were going to show us Shanghai and. Uh... How do things look out there? Well, uh, again, interesting. As I said, you know, previously it topped out in 07. So we've been in this holding pattern, uh, and we think it's a, tr it's again a triangle. We've had um, wave A here, B, C. We're in wave D, uh, an advance in wave D of the triangle, um, which you know we might have a little bit more of an advance in wave D. Once that tops out, we'll have another movement down small movement down, relatively small movement down in, in uh, wave E. So, um, you know, bear markets are sideways, sideways markets are bear markets. Uh, they're corrective markets. And this is what's been happening in, in China. And so, uh, you know, once China completes its movement, it will come out, uh, it'll come out into another bull market. And a lot of people say to us, you know, what about correlations? What about the fact that, um, you know, how can uh, how can China uh, or go sideways to up? Um, how can Japan go up? We think that Japan's already finished its its bear market. How can Japan go up um, if the U.S. market is going to collapse? If the U.S. market is going to go down uh, a long way and, and uh, for an extended period of time? Um, and we say, well, we don't really look at the correlations because that biases our, our, our thought process. We look at each individual uh, wave pattern on its own merit and let the correlations fall out. And of course, you, we flip it around as well. We say, well, how come you know, China's been going sideways for 13 years? The US market's been going up. Uh, Europe's been going sideways for 20 years. The US market's been going up. Um, it, 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 there's no reason why the US market uh, can... Other markets can't go up or sideways to up as the U.S. market is, is coming down. Fascinating. So we're into the last five minutes of the show. If anybody's got a question, now is the time to ask as we move on to the Bond universe. Okay. Um, I'll just flip through this the last few very quickly. Uh, bonds, we, we, we think, um, certainly still in the final wave down. But once this, once the the low in bonds is in, and this is this is the global aggregate index yield, so this is the entire bond yield. Um, obviously, if stocks are, are going to come off, then it will affect credit spreads, it will affect triple Cs, 
uh, all the junk bonds will start to see the weakness there first, obviously. Um, Euro dollar, we think, is is primed to move lower in uh, what we call uh, intermediate degree wave C. Here we think we've seen the high, uh, the recent high, and we should be coming down uh, right now. The CRB index, everyone's talking about inflation again. Now, look, the CRB index topped out back in uh, in 2008. And um, we think this is uh, what we call an ABC correction. A, B, wave C consists of five waves. We've had one, two, three, four. We think we're still in the fifth wave. And you can see this channel here. If we're correct, then the, the channel is a potential price target for the CRB index. So commodities could still come down. Should the market start to go up, we think that will probably signal um, stagflation uh, in, 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 the, in the world. Subpar growth because equities are still going to be coming down, uh, but, but higher commodity prices. But at the moment, we still think the CRB is coming down. Oil, uh, we think this was a, a, a super cycle wave top uh, back here in uh, 08. We've had... Uh, the first movement down, an A, B, and a C wave. B was a triangle. Wave A here, this is the three-month contract, so it, it smooths out the negative uh, movement. We've had a movement up here. Right at the moment, we think that the market could come down uh, quite significantly within within this, what we call a, a wave B. This is we're in a wave B here. But right at the moment, we think the market could come down uh, over the next few weeks and months. Um, and gold. Um, so we think that uh, we had a, a very significant top here in gold uh, back in uh, you know 20, 2011. And so far, we've seen what we're looking at here is an expanded flat. We've had wave A down, wave B up. Why do we think this is a top? Well, one of the reasons, again, as I alluded to earlier, was looking at sentiment. So many people are bullish gold. So many people are calling for unbelievable uh, incredible uh, levels of gold, 20,000, 40,000, 100,000, I think I've seen uh, recently. So, you know, gold is looking uh, like a top to us at the moment. And final chart of the day uh, of the show is Bitcoin. And um, we, we think that Bitcoin's still bullish at this stage, judging purely by the Elliott waves. Uh, 9858 is a key level for us. If it moves below there, then Bitcoin's probably going to be in what we call, again, a triangle, wave D here, which means it will come down in wave E before moving higher again. So, uh, yeah, Bitcoin either bullish directly or more sideways, or to, more down to sideways movement, uh, and then then higher again. So um, that's my quick uh, roundup, <laughs> not so quick roundup of the markets. Well, that, that's quite a, a tour, de, tour de monde in one fell go. Showing us now the, uh, the link to uh, Conquer the Crash, which is, I think, a very, very famous book by, uh, by Robert Prechter, um, talking about, um, well, Elliott Wave and all of the issues that relate to it. Yes, I would, I would certainly recommend people look at um, you know, Elliott Wave International. You can, you can look at Conquer the Crash uh, through there. Um, and there's some... If we are, if our, if we are correct, we're entering this period of deflation, dead deflation. Um, then there's some great uh, uh, tips in there as how to how to survive and thrive during that period. Which is very interesting. So we've got one final question just come in from Martin Watkins again. Um, thank you, Martin. Would negative interest rates 
from more central banks have any effect other than effectively lagging the the, the fifth wave? Uh, well, um, negative interest rates are, are an interesting concept. I mean, they they, they certainly speak to us of the, the the fact that this is actually deflation in the making. Um, you know, there, you could say that there that, that QE um, perhaps has has extended asset purchases and and kept uh, you know movements going. We would say, from a socioeconomic point of view, we would say that social mood actually turned in uh, 09, in March 09, to the point uh, that it, it started to become positive and allowed the Fed to uh, be seen, and the Fed and other central banks to be seen as the saviors uh, of the market. So, um, you know, the jury's still out on the negative interest rates. I mean, certainly we you could say that it, it affects people's ability or affects people's uh, motivation to save. You could say that negative interest rates actually encourage people to save more. So um, we think the jury's out. So the jury's out on that, but at the same time, we're looking at the idea that it could be something close to this mega super cycle top. I mean, I feel privileged to have spoken to you on October the 13th because I don't believe there's any point in time in history that we've seen so many super cycles all seemingly come together at the same time. I mean, that's quite incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, there is, there is a, a confluence of, of things coming in at the moment, certainly. Um, uh, you know, with the uh, but everything is in a different degree of trend. If you look at what's happening in in the uh, in the eurozone, for instance, the eurozone uh, chart that I showed that's that's in, in, in much further along its bear market than the US is. The US is just starting its bear market. Japan's already out of its bear market. China's further along in its bear market. So, um, but right at this specific moment in time, yes, there, there is a confluence of of, of tops going on. It's absolutely fascinating, Mary. Bringing in the socionomics angle has been quite intriguing altogether. Thank you very, very much for this really, really intriguing hour. Certainly, it's really worth going and looking at the report from the Socionomics Foundation talking about the US election. It's very thought-provoking, if nothing else, and I would imagine it'll be a trigger warning to a great many people out there who think that the US election is already done and dusted, and so it'd be interesting to see how that does play out in the course of the next three weeks. Very interesting to hear that we may be on the cusp of another brief downturn in the European stock markets. Uh, not good news for the USA because it sounds like we're in a mega top. And of course, we're basing that on the back of many books, analysis and writings in the past. Indeed, Robert Prechter, as you mentioned, has been a forerunner in the world of popularising Elliott Wave throughout the course of my career and indeed before and, and of course yours as well, Murray. It's a delight to have had you with us today discussing this really, really interesting topic and looking at so many markets that certainly, if nothing else, the good thing is we're not going to be bereft of volatility in the course of the next few months. One area in which we do have a great deal of volatility is COVID-19. And unless you're struggling to keep up with the current state of lockdown in the COVID-blighted north of Europe, for example, the, uh, the area to the north of England, from which, of course, Murray hails, and indeed some of my relatives, the Stuart clan, were originally from that bastion of PC government Scotland. Well, if you're trying to understand the COVID rules right at the moment, perhaps I can help you with a man walks into a bar. Lucky, lucky man.
Thank you for watching, ladies and gentlemen. On that note, it's been a terrific IPO vid live stream 009. Thank you to Baton Production, to Ola for keeping us all organized and on schedule. From myself, Patrick L. Young, thank you to Murray Gunn, my brilliant guest today, the ACE technical analyst for Elliott Wave International. Go and check out their various links that we've been showing you throughout the course of the show. And indeed, look to Conquer the Crash by buying some of those books by Robert Prechter, amongst other products from the Elliott Wave's ACE analysts looking at all markets the world over. We'll be back next week. We've got a magic and fantastic show then. We're going to have the CEO of the Aquas Exchange based between London and Paris, Alistair Haynes, joining us. Fabulous, another discussion in market structure. But in the meantime, watch out for those supercycle tops, ladies and gentlemen. Socioeconomics, socioeconomics says that it's all going to be a very exciting and volatile, if not end to the year, certainly early 2021. Murray again, thank you very much. My name is Patrick L. Young. Look forward to catching up with you in exchangeinvest.com during the course of the week. This is IPOVID 009.